ages of four to eight, you're excused to kids' club. And off they run. You go out to the mail, you pick up an envelope. It's a thick envelope, and you open it. You find it's a wedding invitation. So let me ask you this. What makes you want to go? What makes you want to go to a wedding? Is it the groom? Is it the bride? Is it the celebration? Is it the cake? It's probably the cake, right? What makes you want to go to a wedding? In my years of pastoring, I've been to all kinds of them. It's always fascinating to me. I've been to weddings that that I expected to be absolute train wrecks that ended up being beautiful worship services. And I've been to weddings that I expected to be beautiful worship services that ended up as absolute train wrecks. It is fascinating when you get an invitation to a wedding to begin to speculate what it's going to look like, what's going to happen, and and do you want to go? It's this idea of a wedding invitation we're going to lean into this morning. If you've been with us this summer, we're walking through the parables of Jesus found in the book of Matthew. And the more and more that you would study the book of Matthew, the more that you would see Jesus primarily teaching and training his disciples. That was the thrust of his ministry, discipleship. You see it through and through and throughout this book. And so as we've walked through these parables, you see discipleship. You see Jesus laying before his disciples and us kingdom principle after kingdom principle after kingdom principle in an attempt to prepare his disciples for their earthly ministries. Now, you may remember before we walked into the parables this summer, we walked through 1 Peter. So I want to remind you of 1 Peter 2.9, which we looked at. This is what Peter writes in 1 Peter 2.9. He says, but you, pause here for just a second, but you, who is you? Do me a favor and raise your hand. Yeah. Now all of you have your hands up. Now we're waiting. You? Still waiting on some? Correct. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own kingdom, that you, who is it? May proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into the marvelous lights. So let me ask you this question in your application. Who proclaims his excellencies? Raise your hand. Yeah, we're done. Have a great Sunday. If we got that, the more we get that, the more we understand Jesus' discipleship, he puts it forward to us, and all nine parables pointed us to this, that we, or perhaps in First Peter terms, that you, as believers in Jesus Christ, have been called to be seed sowers, that this is how the kingdom's built. Really, I challenge you to lean into your New Testament. It's not built on the backs of professionals. It it was built on the lives of men who were normal guys, who were normal people. It says in the text that they were perceived to be uneducated. 
not to say anything about you, but as people that carry out the kingdom, it's you. This is how the kingdom is built. Jesus puts this before the disciples in the first nine parables, and yet there are misunderstandings, there are misinterpretations about the kingdom that Jesus also had to confront. We've spent our last couple weeks leaning into this, that there were religious types that, of those days, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, there are lots of other E's we could talk about. Groups of people who departed not to the left into sin, but into the right, into self-righteousness. They'd made God all about knowing all of the right things, about an outward righteousness, that in the next chapter of Matthew, this is how he describes it. For in Matthew 23, there are seven condemnations for the self-righteous. This is what he writes. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Now when the Bible says woe to you, that's kind of a bad deal. Duck out of this. This shouldn't be you. Woe to you. For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. He's talking about a self-righteousness, an external rule following without an internal cleaning. And he pushes it further, saying in 27, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. See, this is how the Scripture describes a self-righteousness. That we worry only about how we look to other people. That we want to look like we've got our act together, and yet inwardly we are dead. You, You would find, reading through the New Testament, that the strongest words Jesus ever speaks are to those who seek their own self-righteousness. So in these parables, in addition to saying what the kingdom is and how it can be attained, Jesus also makes it clear what the kingdom isn't and how you can miss it. He makes it clear that your self-righteousness will not cut it. And so as we've seen in the parable of the two sons, that the wrong authority will lead to the wrong righteousness that if you don't acknowledge god is god and you make you god you pursue your righteousness and not his righteousness you miss the kingdom or to be more clear when i am my own authority when i do only what i want and i approach god on my terms the parable of the two sons declares that this kind of self-righteousness will not inherit the kingdom of god And he quickly moves on, Jesus, to the parable of the tenants to show that the wrong authority and the wrong righteousness leads to judgment and a loss of the kingdom. So in Matthew 22, as we consider Jesus' third parable aimed directly at this idea of self-righteousness as a means to inherit the kingdom, we are again confronted with this reality that it's not my self-righteousness that brings me into the kingdom. And this time he uses an unmistakable eschatological image. He brings us to a wedding feast where there are invitations that have been sent out. And friends, believe me, this is the wedding you want to go to. 
Let's look into the text, starting Matthew 22, verse 1. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, verse 2, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And he sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Let's make a couple of quick observations. First, this is the king who's inviting people. This is the king. Now, I don't know what kind of a concept you have for the king, but this is not like a British monarchy. Don't mean to make fun of Canadians. But this is a way bigger deal. Because these people, their only understanding of an absolute monarchy would, be, would have been an absolute monarchy. It would have been something like Saudi Arabia or Oman, according to the wise intellectual source Wikipedia. There are only five absolute monarchies in the world now. And when an absolute monarchy, when a king says do this, do you know what you do? You do it. There's no questions asked. When the king says, come to my son's party, you kind of get the idea, I'm going to the party or I'm dying. Those are your choices. And, and so when you lean into this and they're sent an invitation and they're not coming, it's giving you quite a picture that would have been unmistakable. The price associated with the disobeying the king was death. And these people didn't come. And secondly, and somewhat anecdotally, I point this out. If my wife was here, she'd appreciate it. This is clearly a well-organized king. Because you can tell from the text he'd already sent out to save the dates. Didn't he? He'd notified them that they were going to be invited. And now he sends somebody to them to invite them. He sends his servants out, which, by the way, is way more expensive than an RSVP. In my day, we had to send the RSVP with stamps on them. They were quite expensive. But this is nowhere close to sending an individual out to each person to make sure they, get, they know they're invited. This is the extent the king goes to, and the story continues. In verse 4, he had sent other servants even more people now going. You've been notified. He sent a servant. Now he's sending someone else saying, tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered. Side note, that's enough to get me there. And everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. And the king gives him a third opportunity. And you see a picture of an exceedingly patient king who sends an invitation, who now sends a call, and now is sending an additional servant to tell you he's ready. And what I want you to see from that is the picture of a loving, pursuing God who loves well enough to pursue you, even in the midst of your depravity. John Stott, one of my favorite theologians, wrote this. My faith is due to Jesus Christ himself who pursued me relentlessly even when I was running away from him in order to go my own way. And if it were not for the gracious pursuit of the hound of heaven, I would today be on the scrap heap of wasted and discarded lives. John Stott points to a 19th century poem written by British poet Francis Thompson called The Hound of Heaven. This poem vividly illustrates this idea that Jesus, in love, like a hound dog, is on your trail. 
Now, if you've ever run from the Lord, you know this to be true. If you haven't, read the book of Jonah. He's on your case. Many times in my life have I tried to escape God's will. Hasn't worked. I tried exceedingly hard to not pastor a church. I tried exceedingly hard not to move to Fargo, North Dakota. I pastor a church in Fargo. You see how this works out? The hound of heaven, it's this picture that our God is constantly pursuing us. Seen even in this parable, which is not about that. That this king would invite and invite and invite and invite and invite and invite. And yet it's the Pharisees who constantly denied him. It's who Jesus is speaking to. It's the Pharisees that Jesus is responding to. Recently heard a pastor say that the art of great storytelling is to help people see themselves without assaulting them with the truth about themselves. And that's what Jesus does here. He wants to show the Pharisees who they really are without assaulting them with the truth of who they really are. So this is Jesus' picture. He puts it out before them, saying in verse 5, but they, referring to those who denied an invitation to the wedding, but they paid no attention, and they went off, one to his farm, another to his business, and while the rest seized his servants, treating them shamefully and killing them. So you see that these people who are not coming to the wedding don't just mildly sit back in non-attendance. They actually fight the servants who are giving the message. And friends, if you desire to honor Jesus Christ and to stand up for his name in the world, you'll find this to be true. This is why atheists, who for the life of me, I will never understand an aggressive atheist, who the end of their faith ought to be self-absorption. It ought to be hedonism. But yet you find, even in our newspaper, a guy who baffles me at how he always is arguing against Christianity. Wouldn't an atheist have better things to do? Like, take up a hobby. Play golf. Don't attack Christians. But it's predicted here first in the text that those who rebel against the king fight his servants. And you see how this parable makes plain the Pharisees. Verse 7, the king was angry, and he sent his troops, and he destroyed those murderers, and he burned their city. And if this is Jesus telling us a story to illustrate his kingdom, if it isn't the very vivid point here that God will hold men accountable for how they respond to his kingdom? See, this is Jesus, who many people like to paint as passive. As a blonde hair, blue-eyed, passive wimp. And yet here he's telling a very vivid story of pursuing rebellers and destroying them and burning their city. Now I think the point here is, is Jesus will hold people accountable. He's building off these two earlier parables. That if you want to deny his authority and live by your own, That if you want to deny his righteousness afforded to you in the life of his son and live by your own, that you will be denied the kingdom. 
See, as Jesus is putting this before and Matthew is recording it, you have to understand that the Jewish people, even as a whole, had come to believe that the only requirement to get into the kingdom was to be Jewish. Which is to say that the only requirement to get into the kingdom is that my mom was good enough, she was Jewish. My dad was good enough, he was Jewish. And that based on that, I could get in as if it's passed on genetically. And to be mildly fair with you, I wish it was some days. I wouldn't have to pray for my kids as much. It would mean a lot to me if Pam and I could just pass it on genetically to our kids. But that's not how the kingdom's passed on, is it? No, it's a matter of believing. The only thing that matters is that you believe. Friends, don't make the mistake that because your parents believed, because your parents go to church, that you're in the kingdom. The question is, do you believe? This is the question for those of us who are not Jewish. And this is the part that seems helpful and good for us who are not Jewish. Because even as this story is being told, we would have been seen outside the kingdom. So this next part actually is your invitation. In verse 8, Then the king said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both good and bad. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. See, the king calls his servants to fill the halls. The good and the bad, both called. Now see, this picture angers you if you like self-righteousness. How in the world did the bad get invited? That becomes your struggle. But when you lean into belief, when you lean into the Scriptures and you lean into your own sinfulness to go, actually, I'm the bad. It's a shock that He invites me. And I think that about me, and I pray you think that about you. But we get invited. The king wants the hall filled. So why do they get in? Under what merit? Let's watch this last part. Verse 11. But when the king came in to look at his guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. He wasn't wearing the right clothes. Now don't make the mistake to think that this is about a shirt and a tie. Let's lean in further to see what's going on here. How is this guy not wearing the right clothes? In verse 12, the king says to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. And what Jesus in an illustration puts before them is of all the people who will be invited in. And this story ought to make it plain. Everybody gets invited one way or another. Everyone is called. And by that, that's not a theological calling. Words do mean different things in English than they do in Greek. This isn't a theological calling as if you've been called and you persevere. No, this is a you've been invited calling. So when you lean into but not everyone is chosen, it means that not everyone responds. 
And so when this guy is cast out because he doesn't have the right clothes, you need to lean into that to figure out what that means. And in Revelation 19, when the great wedding feast, the one that you do not want to miss, is described. This is what John writes in Revelation 19.8. And it was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen. Her, the church. The bride of Christ. That's you and that's me. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. And what does the text say? For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. It's the righteousness of the saints according to the text. And what is your righteousness? What is it? It's Jesus Christ. That's the only righteousness you can stand on. It's the only righteousness that matters. It's believing in Jesus. Friends, when you get invited to the wedding feast in the end, you better believe in Jesus. Because who your mom is won't matter. Who your dad is won't matter. Your last name will not be taken into account. They won't look for your Ancestry.com documents. And they won't ask for a listing of your good deeds, your good works. They won't care whether it measures up or not. Because here's the reality of the Scriptures. Next to Jesus on the cross, there was a man, a thief. Clearly he'd done everything as wrong his whole life. He'd done enough to be considered a murderer, an insurrectionist, and he's now being crucified. And what does he say? Jesus, today think of me in paradise. What does Jesus say? Today you'll be with me in paradise. Friends, that guy is in heaven. You cannot argue that. According to the scriptures, he's in. You want to weigh out his wrongs and his rights? Oh, it's way, way overscaled. It's way unfair that that guy gets in, isn't it? No. It's believing in Jesus That is our righteousness. That is the clothes that you wear in the kingdom, according to Revelation 19, putting forth the very picture of the wedding feast that we've all been invited to. So what do we do with this parable? Living in the 21st century, what do we do with this parable that Jesus spoke to a group of Pharisees and self-righteous people? What do we do? In closing, I want to draw out four things for you. First, we have to continue to lean into the idea that there are misunderstandings of the kingdom. In the time of Jesus and in our time, men have always believed that they could earn and do whatever they wanted and enter into the kingdom on their own merit. We've always thought that. We've always wanted to make our own plan to get in. And we've always been wrong. Billy Graham years ago was asked, what percentage of the believing church, I'm sorry, what percentage of the church do you think is believing? Or more clearly, what percentage of the church do you think will be in eternity? This is the church. These are every Sunday go, going kind of people that Billy Graham, 
who I think we all hold in pretty good esteem, what do you think he said? See, if you listen to us talk, we think it's all of us. Oh man, I'm so glad we're all going to be there. Holy happy huddle. Why? Because we're all here. Clearly Sunday attendance has counted. Now Billy Graham said less than 10%. I believe the correct word is ufta. You know why he would suggest that? Because having walked through American church after American church after American church after American church, he's watched people clothe themselves in their own righteousness, expecting it to work. And it won't. And friends, the church has to love you enough to tell you very clearly and very upfront that if your hope for eternity is your good work, if it's your good deeds, if it's your good actions, you're not getting in. The only hope we've got is the name of Jesus Christ. That when you stand before Him in eternity, the only thing with tremendous confidence that you need to say is, I believe in Jesus Christ. That He was my Savior. And that though I made a fool of Him in my lifetime, though I blew it all the time, I stand here because of Jesus. And you know what happens next? Well, come in. I'm so glad you're here. It's believing in Jesus. It's it's not our self-righteousness. We cannot preach against this enough. Because even 2,000 years later, we're still making up our own reasons to get in. We're still denying the truth of the Scripture and making up our own truths and trying to get in on our own merit. And it just isn't true. See, the kingdom is available to the good and to the bad, to any who would believe in His name. John 1.12 said, But to all who receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. You want to be a child of God? You want God to be your Father? Believe in Him. I had a good friend of mine several years ago describe that he tells his daughters that I'm your daddy, but I'm not your father. See, your daddy will let you down. Your daddy will fall short. But little girls know your father never will. Boy, did that whack me in the chest. I've started to tell my own little girls that because I know how far short I will fail them in their lives. All three of my kids, I will fail them over and over and over again. And the hope that they've got is not to project their living, fleshly dad on an earthly, perfect father, but to quickly discern the difference. Between a dad who is saved, not on his own merit, not on his good deeds, but saved on the blood of Jesus Christ and in his name, and a holy father who loves him enough to send invitation after invitation after invitation after invitation into his kingdom, who will never, ever, ever fail him. You want to be a child of God? Believe in him and enter into his kingdom. Second thing, 
I think we're to notice the servants of the king. These are douloi according to the text. The same word that is used to describe those who would surrender their lives to Jesus Christ on earth. That we would become slaves unto Jesus. And as verse 9 points out for us, go to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you can find. Yesterday morning, I took Pierce and Anna Kate and we went to the uh, farmer's market downtown. I had this plan in my mind. I thought I was going to nail it as a father. I I gave each of them $5. I said, guys, this is what I want you to do. I want you to buy something that has once been alive and is now not. I'd prefer it to be a vegetable, something we can cook for dinner. Mom will be really excited that we brought something. We're supporting some local farmers. We are really good people. So I get my kids out of the car. I pull out my wallet. I give them their $5. I say, guys, we've got a plan. And I hand them both $5. And Anna Kate looks at me, the little theologian that she is, it says, Daddy, did we come here to tell people about Jesus? Because that's what pastors do. I almost threw up in my own mouth. Um, yes? I mean, what do you say to a five-year-old who gets the kingdom better than I do? We had several conversations about Jesus, but I, I was actually humiliated that my daughter came up with the thought. My kids need to know that I care enough about the kingdom to speak about it. My kids need to watch me care enough about the kingdom to speak about it in front of them. Friends, our job as servants of the king is to go to the main roads and invite everybody. The good, the bad, the kingdom is wide open. It's not for me to decide. Salvation is not based on ethnicity, education, income, popularity, ministry positions, personality types, cultural savviness, athletic ability, or attractiveness. Now the kingdom is doors are wide open. Revelation 7-9 puts this before us. The words of John, having seen heaven, says this, and after I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number. If you don't like a lot of people, you won't like heaven. From every nation... Every nation in Greek is this term, alte ethnos. Every single ethnicity. If you don't like people of other colors, you won't like heaven. From all tribes and people and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, See, this is the picture of eternity. We don't get to pick who goes in. We're called to go to the streets and invite everybody. Whatever they look like, the good, the bad, the ugly, to make plain the invitation from the king. See, if we lean into the Great Commission, fascinatingly enough, it's not fulfilled in people coming. It's actually fulfilled in our going. That we're obedient when we go, not that when we're successful. We can never mistake that. We're obedient when we step out and invite people in, not that we're ever successful at it. We obey when we invite. And finally, 
to remind you out of verse 8, the wedding feast is at hand. This was the ministry of John the Baptist to walk around preaching. The kingdom of God is at hand. And friends, it's an unmistakable reality in the Scriptures that we are literally called to live like Jesus is coming tomorrow. You know why? He might come tomorrow. And I'm all for it. He may come tomorrow. Paul, using words he wrote to the Thessalonians, wrote this in 1 Thessalonians 5. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there's peace and security. By the way, those people are all self-righteous. They're all looking at their own deeds going, hey, we're doing great. There's peace, there's security. Then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman. You ever experienced that? It's self-descriptive. And they will not escape. Friends, as Jesus has walked into parable after parable after parable, through the book of Matthew, he's putting kingdom principles before us. That we're called to be seed sowers. We're called to go into the streets to announce the coming king. To make plain the invitation to the wedding feast that we're invited to. And that wedding feast, which you will not want to miss, as it will be the greatest wedding ever, your invitation is believing in Jesus. All you can stand on is believing in in Jesus. Your entrance into the kingdom is on believing in Jesus. That knowing that our deeds will never get us there. In fact, if I think any of my deeds add anything to what Christ did at the, at the cross, I've negated the gospel. I believe that what he did at the cross some 2,000 years ago was enough to cover all of my sin. What I did yesterday, what I did 10 years ago, what I'll do in 20 minutes, what I'll do tomorrow, whatever falls before me next week, Jesus Christ covered it with His blood and that's my only hope. And it's your only hope. May we be a people that believe in that great hope. Because we don't deserve it, because he did far more than we'll ever deserve, and we'd be a people who also tell about a great king who'd invite us to a party we don't deserve to get into and give us the clothes to get in, though we could never afford them ourselves. We invite people to that party like crazy. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your word. Father, that as we hold the Bible, we hold the Word of God. Father, you you inspired it. You breathed out truth. Father, this isn't Ben's opinion. This isn't the church's opinion. This is your opinion. It's fact. What you said, it's what you gave us. Father, I pray that as we walk away from here, just in earnestness, Father, if there are people in this room who are comfortable in their self-righteousness, that you would afflict them with the hound of heaven to know that their self-righteousness 
will not get them into heaven. Father, I want that to be true of none of us. Not a single one. Keep us up way late at night. Don't let us sleep until we've reconciled ourselves to your son. It's too important not to. And Father, we thank you that it is by believing in your Son that we're invited. It's by believing in your Son that we become your children. It's by believing in your Son that we become heirs to your kingdom. It's just in trusting your Son that we have life, life to the full. Father, give us the strength to trust you more and more and more and more and more and help us in our unbelief. In the name of your son, we pray. Amen. Will the ushers come forward?